Hello and welcome back to day two of this Mental Health Awareness Week podcast. Yesterday we explored together some of the basics of mental health and mental illness. We were reminded that we all have mental health, that if physical health could be described as the functioning of this body in which we live our lives, then mental health could be said to be everything else about how we live, how we feel, why we're living, in lots of different ways. Any of us might develop mental health problems at some point in our lives, depending on our circumstances. Some of us might have increased risk from our biology or genetics or from the things which have happened to us in our lives. But high levels of stress, difficult experiences or unexpected trauma could impact any of us at any time and leave us struggling with the aftermath. We're all going through collective trauma at the moment, or if not exactly trauma, certainly a period of heightened stress and anxiety. The exact flavour of our stress might be different. One person might be more worried about the health risk to themselves or loved ones, the next focusing more on the financial impact, paying the bills or keeping their business afloat. And of course it's not necessarily an either-or situation. We can be really worried about both of these and more. Unless our lives were trouble-free before this crisis began, COVID-19 hasn't suddenly solved relationship issues, concerns over your child who's struggling in school, or those test results which might change your life forever. So it's not unreasonable to suggest that some of us might be finding things hard right now, even if we're normally the coolest cucumber in the salad drawer. The question is, how do we notice when things are getting out of hand, when actually we could maybe be doing with taking some steps to look after ourselves, rather than charging ahead at 100 miles an hour? What kind of things might we see in others that give us a clue that they aren't doing so well, that we might be able to take note and check in with them and see what we can do to help? Today we're going to think about this a little bit and see if we can't nip some of those problems in the bud. The first thing to say is that there's no definite checklist to say if you have A, B and C then you're definitely depressed. We shouldn't be worrying about diagnosing ourselves or our friends with one condition or another. Diagnosis is difficult even for the professionals. And it's not always necessary to stick a label on someone to help them. We can talk about symptoms and signs, things we experience which are unpleasant or not how they should be. And not how they should be will be different for each of us. There's no such thing as normal, only average. Normal sleep patterns, for instance. We can say that on average an adult will need between seven and nine hours sleep a night, more for children. But saying that, we can also be well aware that many of us get nowhere near that. And also that we might be fine with that. One person might be okay after five hours, another need ten, although will be good for nothing. And that's fine. Similarly, we all have different temperaments. Some of us are highly strung and will get very agitated at the slightest inconvenience. Others more relaxed and take life as it comes. None of this is right or wrong. It might have different consequences for each of us, but it doesn't mean we should all be the same. We all play our role. What's important is knowing what's normal for you, so you can be aware when things change. Any change which is unpleasant, uncomfortable or problematic for you is worth paying attention to. But sometimes the change may be so profound that it's having a real and lasting impact on your behaviour, your relationships or your ability to do your job or enjoy your life. And that is when we really need to take some action to get life back on track and not suffer any longer than we need to. So, what is normal for you now? And has it always been like that? We can think about functional things like sleep, as we've just mentioned. Not just how much we get, but how easily it comes or how difficult we find getting out of bed on a morning. 
Are you an early bird, a night owl or some kind of permanently exhausted pigeon? How is your appetite, your digestion, your temper? Are you easygoing or do you fly off the handle? How emotionally reactive are you? Is it very unusual for you to feel like crying whether you let yourself or not? Or do you burst into tears at the slightest little thing? It's good to check in with ourselves every so often to see how we are and if anything has changed. We might sometimes be more likely to notice change in our loved ones. You probably know the signs if your partner or best friend is in a bad mood or if you've done something to annoy them. So if you aren't sure how you change when out of sorts, ask them what they think. You'd be surprised what people come up with. That being said, if we know things aren't right, sometimes we will go to great lengths not to let on to other people that we aren't superheroes. We don't make it easy for people to look after us, that's for sure. It's also a good idea to think back over your life. Have you always been the way you are? Or have you got more irritable over time, more impatient or more mel melancholy? Of course, we all change depending on what happens to us through our lives. But sometimes that gradual shift might not be irreversible. It might be possible to get back some of your youthful exuberance by learning new ways of dealing with our worries. If we want to be able to spot changes from the norm in people, to be able to see at an early stage if someone is struggling and offer help, it follows that we need to know what that norm is. We need to take an interest, certainly with our families and friends, especially children, but also in the workplace. We might know some of our colleagues better than others. Some people keep their lives quite compartmentalised, but managers need to recognise that being entirely task or business oriented will not necessarily work in terms of being able to effectively carry out your duty of care over your team. And given the impact on attendance, performance and productivity that mental ill health can have, if you aren't looking after the emotional well-being of your team, then you aren't really looking after its business interests properly either. So get to know your people. You might not be best friends, but hopefully you can have a good enough relationship to know a little bit about each other's home life and be comfortable asking or telling someone if there's a problem. At the very least, we should know who in our teams are closer to each other. So if you're worried about someone but don't feel comfortable asking, you could ask their friend to check in on them on your behalf. As I mentioned yesterday, there are over a hundred or so different potential physical symptoms of anxiety. Ways in which the body responds to perceived danger and also sometimes to times of heightened stress. Things that make sense in their historical context suddenly become out of place and troublesome. So if you're walking through the savannah and suddenly see movement in the grasses and your brain thinks, is that a tiger? It prepares for the answer to be yes. It makes your eyesight and hearing hypersensitive so you can tell what's going on. It starts your heart pounding so you get blood around to your muscles and oxygen to your brain so you can run fast, fight hard and think quickly. Your breathing quickens to feed that need for oxygen too, maybe leading your mouth to get dry. While you're worrying about all of this, some of your systems kind of go on standby because red alert is not when you do maintenance. So you might find your digestive system goes funny and your immune system isn't what it should be. It doesn't matter too much because this moment of fear with the tiger will be over soon one way or another. Either it isn't a tiger and we're safe or it is and we're either dead, escaped or victorious. Unfortunately, modern crises aren't like that. Our stresses and worries these days tend to be more chronic than acute, and we haven't evolved a way to deal with that. Instead, we stay in that high state of crisis and our systems remain in standby or high alert. And over time, we can really start to feel awful. Holding tension in our body 
can lead to physical aches and pains, headaches, spine and shoulder trouble. Our digestion can go one way or the other, constipation or diarrhoea, irritable bowel syndrome, heartburn, sometimes needing to wee all the time, feeling or being sick. Blood pressure can cause dizziness and headaches too, and also feelings of confusion, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, tinnitus ringing in our ears. We can get tingling or numb extremities. We can feel like we're having difficulty breathing or like we're choking. Sometimes these things can come in the form of sudden spikes of terror or panic attacks. They can come out of nowhere and can take many forms. Hyperventilation or feeling like you can't breathe, chest pain or thinking you're going to have a heart attack or drop dead, or a sudden conviction that something isn't right, something bad is going to happen. People who've never had any mental health issues at all or who don't even think that they're stressed can suddenly have a panic attack out of the blue and it can be completely disorienting and frightening when you don't know what's going on. It's very real, but also something we can learn to overcome. Hang on a minute. All this bodily stuff. Wasn't I meant to be talking about mental health? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's all of these physical effects before we even come on to thinking about what's going on inside our heads. People with depression can also experience many physical symptoms too. Issues with sleep and appetite, very common again, affecting different people differently. Some people will struggle to sleep, others struggle to stay awake. Some will be constantly hungry and comfy, others lose their appetite altogether. We might see someone's weight go up or down or notice that they seem really tired and lethargic. People can lack energy and motivation and also the executive functioning capability which enables us to go about our business. We can struggle with what seem to other people like simple tasks, personal hygiene, doing the dishes, sending an email. Libido can go out the window and some women even find their menstrual cycle is affected. Given the suppression of the immune system, it's not uncommon for people to be prone to picking up infections, colds, stomach bugs, or finding it harder to shake off than others. Feeling generally run down can be both a symptom and a cause of depression. Inside our minds, our thoughts can play havoc. Anxiety is meant to keep us safe, to make sure we're alert to danger, so our brain rewards us in a way when we acknowledge a concern. The more we think about it, the more it rewards us. So we keep thinking about it over and over again, even if that isn't helping, even if it's actually making things worse. When you put your head on your pillow at night and suddenly enjoy a slideshow of all of life's stresses, all the problems you're facing at work, when you're probably as far away as it's possible to be from being able to do anything about it in terms of time and space, it's not useful, but our brain somehow thinks it's doing us a favour because we remain aware of the problem. We start to doubt ourselves, our own ability, our competence our worth. A lot of mental health issues have their roots in, a, in our early lives, insecurities that have taken seed when we were very small. Maybe they've troubled us all the time or maybe we've been fine for a long time until something shakes our foundations and we find it hard to get our equilibrium back. Low self-esteem, lack of self-confidence, thinking we're stupid, unlovable, worthless, pathetic, a failure. Or maybe we turn all of this outwards and we become very critical and aggressive unforgiving of others' weaknesses, quick to blame and anger. It all comes from the same root. Didn't I say we're really our own worst enemies? We all have negative thoughts now and again, but sometimes when stress and anxieties rise, suddenly we can't keep them in check anymore. They start to overwhelm us and become more and more negative and colours the view of our world around us. We lose interest in life, find it harder to laugh or enjoy ourselves. We lose sight of hope, Solutions offered to our problems seem impossible and we can't talk ourselves and we can talk ourselves into a very dark corner indeed. 
When we're going through all this physical and emotional torment, it's not surprising that we might behave differently. Being in pain or discomfort, being tired or lacking energy, it might make us more sluggish than usual anyway. But that lack of interest in life can also make us stop doing some of the things we might usually enjoy. Playing sports, going out or spending time with friends, for instance. As well as losing interest in the activities, we might be prone to withdraw, to self-isolate. We can persuade ourselves that no one really wants to spend time with us anyway. No one finds us interesting. Nobody loves us. It's all a fake. We don't want people trying to draw us out of ourselves. It's much better just to be on our own, where we can't let anyone down and they can't let us down either. Sometimes, though, we might try to self-medicate to snap ourselves out of it. We might turn to alcohol more than usual, indulge in drugs or try risky activities to make ourselves feel something or distract ourselves from our distress. It's not uncommon for people to develop gambling problems, run up debts or start affairs, even if this is entirely out of character. Sometimes someone might know they're unwell but not want to go to the doctors about it for whatever reason. It's been known for them to seek some of a partner's medication, antidepressants for instance. This is a bad idea on lots of levels. Some people use self-harming behaviours in response to their pain. There's lots of reasons why people self-harm. Some for control, for release, relief or punishment. Some to give physical form to what they're feeling inside. While most people are quite secretive about self-harm, it is possible you might notice the physical signs. Unexplained injuries, bruises or blood on clothes or sheets. Similarly, some people develop issues around eating. As mentioned, many people have issues with appetite, but also compulsive behaviours can form around eating or controlling food in one way or another, restriction, binging or purging. The ritual and control can be a welcome distraction from other problems to begin with, but in some cases can become a dangerous issue in itself. If our relationship with food or exercise becomes obsessive and starts to take precedence over other aspects of our life, like family and friends, there might be a problem. We might notice other kinds of obsessive or ritualised behaviours developing in ourselves or others. Many of us have some level of ritual or superstition in our background. There's something common about magical thinking in our society. I will always salute a single magpie. I don't like to step on a crack or break a mirror. Maybe you wear your team's football shirt when you watch them play. Maybe you always wear your lucky pants. We can also be creatures of routine. Most of us tend to go back to the same places time and again, have a preferred seat on the bus or in the pub, have other things that we like to be just so and feel at least mildly ill at ease if it's not. Maybe it's putting your clothes on in a particular order, the way you make tea, how long you run the tap for when you fill the kettle. Some of these things might have a small nub of sense at the beginning of them, others are completely random. Sometimes people develop obsessions or compulsions of different kinds in response to or to relieve their distress in some way. They can start small and grow into something much more problematic and intrusive. We might notice people becoming more preoccupied with these things or not being able to get worries out of their minds. Obsessive, unpleasant, intrusive thoughts which can be utterly overwhelming. Our current situation is unfortunately quite ideal for the development of such worries. An unseen contagion which we're trying to keep safe from. Rituals of hand washing in a particular way, cleaning and sanitising. When we're scared, we can quickly start to wonder, is 20 seconds long enough? How often should I wash my hands? Should I wash that as well? The less safe we feel, the more we might lean on and expand these rituals to try and compensate. Similarly, keeping abreast of the news. How often do we need to check? 
How many articles do we need to read to make sure we know everything we need to know to stay safe? Obsession easily creeps in. That pesky brain of ours again, wanting to make sure we're alert to danger. So if we see this behaviour developing in ourselves or others, we need to ask, how much is too much? Is it reasonable? Is it getting in the way of anything else? Sometimes people act out when they're not doing well. They don't seem down or anxious. They just seem bad-tempered, argumentative, aggressive or irritable, maybe even violent. Many of us haven't been given the greatest toolkit to deal with our emotions. Certainly men and boys in our culture have often been told it's somehow weak to show you're sad, lonely, scared, embarrassed, even in love. The only acceptable emotions seem to be anger, fury or outrage. And so that is what we can get. Like a proverbial lion with a thorn in its paw, the pain comes out in anger. Another tragic consequence of our lack of education in how to deal with our emotions and the pressure people can feel to bottle it all up and never ask for help is that far too many of us end up thinking that nothing can help and end up taking our own lives. So many bereaved loved ones and friends find themselves stunned in the aftermath of someone's death, having had no idea that they've been struggling at all, never having been given a chance to help that person get through their difficulties, as I'm sure we would all want to do anything we could for a friend in pain. As I said earlier, we don't make it easy for people to look after us. Sometimes people are very good at keeping things hidden. Sometimes people make a snap decision. Sometimes people are completely delusional when they go. But sometimes there are signs, if we know what to look out for. And if we manage to catch them, it gives us a vital chance for a conversation which might just come at the right time to save someone's life. We've talked about people with depression feeling worthless, hopeless, helpless, words like that. We've also talked about tiredness and lacking in energy, disturbance of sleep and appetite. These things are doubly true of someone who might be having suicidal thoughts. They may also seem disinterested in the future, say in summer holidays, Christmas dues, working for a bonus. They might seem to be finishing things up, tying up loose ends, putting things in order and sorting things out. If someone talks about ending their life, take it seriously. It's a myth that people who talk about it won't do it. Any written or spoken mention of suicide could be a cry for help. Sometimes it's not so direct. It might be talking about someone else, a celebrity, testing the waters of the subject with you. People may say they feel trapped, like they're a burden or bringing their family down. They may become erratic, turn to drink or drugs even more than before. Their mood may be unpredictable. Instead of sadness, there may be great anger. And if someone has been in a bad way for a while, and suddenly seems okay, in fact they seem pretty good, please check in with them, because that can be a sign that they've decided to act on thoughts that might have been with them for a long while, and perversely that decision can come as a huge relief. If you're worried about someone, ask them if they're thinking about suicide. It's easier to say yes to someone asking you that than it is to broach that topic, even with the best of friends. Encourage them to talk about their feelings, if not with you or their doctor, then call the Samaritans on 116123, email joe at org, or text the Shout Crisis text line on 85258. If someone is in immediate danger or has hurt themselves, please call 999 or get them to A&E as soon as you can. Some people experience symptoms of mental illness which are much further outside the realm of what most of us know. 
in that they might develop psychosis. This means that in some way they lose touch with reality. While the nature of reality is something which we could debate, there is st still some level of consensus. Sometimes people may have hallucinations, perceiving things with their senses which aren't there to the best of anyone else's knowledge. Seeing or hearing things, for instance, or feeling physical sensations, like things crawling under your skin. Any of the senses can be affected, so smelling or tasting things which aren't there, or at odds with what should be there. When talking to someone, it might become apparent that they're experiencing delusional beliefs, or what is called thought disorder. Their speech pattern might become strange. They might not make much sense. Or they might be speaking perfectly reasonably, but it's what they're talking about which puzzles you. Delusional beliefs might be very strange or extreme, for instance, that their family have been replaced by aliens. Or they might just be things for which there is no evidence. Things which might, in another circumstance, be true. Say that someone is watching or stealing from them. Or that they have a particular job when you know that isn't the case. Their logic might be skewed. They might say they can see patterns and messages in things around them. Sometimes if a friend becomes unwell like this, it can be very confusing at first. We might think they're messing about. Sometimes we may only realise quite gradually that they aren't well. All of the signs of anxiety and depression may show up as someone becomes unwell. They may not look after themselves. They may become increasingly suspicious and tense, talk more and more about their preoccupations and new unusual beliefs. It's a tricky one in today's society as people can become convinced by all sorts of outlandish conspiracy theories or become radicalised religiously or politically. It's not my job to decide what is normal and what is delusional, but if you notice profound change in a friend, it might be worth gently exploring what's going on or talking to their family to see if they share your concerns. I've talked a lot about change, about problems that emerge when people go through difficult times, people not being themselves. But it's important to note that some people have more ingrained enduring issues, which may mean that the way they are all the time is in some way different from whatever we might think of as normal. Normal is variable. It's a set of ways we expect or need people to be to be able to function in society or in work or families. Some people may be more emotionally reactive than is convenient in an office. Some people may struggle to control their temper, may, may react badly to being told what to do. There are a wide range of ways in which people might struggle, in ways that either cause them intense distress or make it difficult for them to relate to others, keep a job or out of trouble. This may come from experiences that can happen early in life or at crucial stages of emotional and identity development or from sustained issues like bullying or abuse later in life. It can still be possible for that person to get help and support to overcome their difficulties, but in understanding their situation, we need to understand it may not be easy or quick or easy to access. If one of our colleagues or staff is out of sorts, we certainly might notice one of the many changes or signs I've talked about so far. But again, people might go out of their way to hide it, especially if it's a very masculine workplace. If someone doesn't generally talk about themselves or their home life much, or if the culture of the workplace is very strict around sickness and so on. Even if people realise what's going on with themselves, which isn't always the case, sometimes people fear that if they were open about having difficulties with their mental health, even just struggling with stress, that it would go badly for them. 
from worrying that friends will think less of them or fearing that their job will be at risk, there are lots of barriers to openness which can haunt the mind of someone who is already feeling bad about life. But no matter how much we try to hide it, it can start to impact us in all sorts of aspects of our work. Trouble sleeping may translate into being late more often or struggling with shift patterns. Argumentativeness or sensitivity might lead to falling out with colleagues, arguing with managers or just being less cooperative, maybe making complaints or seeing slights where there are none. If we're having trouble concentrating or making decisions, thinking clearly, we may make more mistakes or lose confidence in our ability and be asking for reassurance or for someone to check things we've known for years. Our performance in general might slip, quality or quantity. We might seem unfocused or disengaged. We might not volunteer or contribute as much as normal. If we're having thoughts of self-harm or suicide, we might be a little less careful about safety procedures than we should be because we're not caring about our own safety as we should and we forget that that has a knock-on effect for others. If we're drinking more than usual or doing other things we maybe shouldn't, that might spill over into work time too, either as intoxication or hangover. Sometimes, of course, people will take time off sick, but many organisations don't encourage that. So sometimes it might be last minute unscheduled leave or even just not turning up with no explanation. If someone does take the time off for sick leave, they won't always be honest about the cause. It's easier to say you have a bad back than own up to being so depressed you can't get out of bed. On the surface, many of these things could lead to performance, attendance or conduct related disciplinaries, certainly a chat with the manager. And of course, sometimes these things will be just exactly what they look like. But if something doesn't seem to tally with what you know of a person, their performance history, or if it's coming at a time of stress or worry in other ways, make sure you don't jump to conclusions. Have well-being conversations with your staff, express your concern and make sure they have the opportunity to tell you if there's anything going on that you need to know about. Make sure your team know that if they're struggling, you have a duty to try and help if you can. The duty to make reasonable adjustments to try and help people with a disability or long-term health condition to overcome any problems that might be causing in doing their job. Ask them to give you the opportunity to try and figure something out before you have to go down any official route to deal with poor performance, behaviour or attendance. Those of us who are working from or just stuck at home at the moment may be noticing things about our family more than ever before. Or if we're separated from elderly or vulnerable relatives, we might be worried about how they're dealing with the isolation. Spending more time around people at close quarters can be a blessing and a curse. It certainly puts relationships through their paces, makes us aware of our loved one's habits that might not have been as obvious before or were hidden in the however many hours a day they were off out at work or school. We're all trying our best to navigate around each other and all aware that things are decidedly not normal. Even if you might usually expect your partner or child to talk to you if they're having problems, in these troubled times they might be more inclined to keep it to themselves, to not want to bother you or think they're being silly to be affected. We're all very good at assuming that unless people tell us otherwise, they're doing amazingly well. Everything's easy for them. They never struggle or even break a sweat. When, of course, we're all living our own little dramas all the time in our own heads. Be aware of that and give them the opportunity to talk. Ask them how they're doing, how they're finding things. What are they missing? What are they enjoying? What thoughts or fears do they have? Open up with a few of your thoughts and feelings to show them it's okay. Tell them you love them and you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and look after them and try and replicate as many of their usual habits in virtual form as possible. Help them to keep in touch. And join them in trying new things too. 
while it's a difficult and strange time, it could be one of the greatest opportunities for building really good relationships and lasting memories. With smaller children or older relatives with less capacity, it might not always be easy for them to express how they're feeling. If adults find it hard to talk about anxiety and so on, it's no surprise that a five-year-old might not have the words. So listen to what they do say. They may interpret things on a physical sense, talk of tummy aches and so on, and they may become very clingy and scared of you going away. Do your best to reassure them and make them feel safe, but keep an eye on it for when things change again. You may need some help to help them to readjust. If you do notice some of these signs in yourself or in people around you, have a conversation. Take them for a cup of tea. Talk about what's going on in their lives, what's causing stress. Try not to jump in too quickly. Our job is not to fix someone else's problems for them. That's seldom possible. But we might be able to help them see things from a different perspective, give them some useful information or help them think through what the right course of action is for them. Encourage them to talk to other people, keep sharing, getting new angles, new information. Talk to professionals, both specific to the problem in hand and medical. The thing about anxiety and depression and so on is that it can impair our ability to deal with situations, to think clearly. So while the real problem may be something else, getting support for our mental health may be the key to sorting out those issue, other issues too. There are lots of support services out there. A lot of peer support groups popping up where people, and sometimes specifically men, get together to talk and realise they're not the only one who's thinking that they're a failure, a bad father or husband, or having thoughts that frighten them and they don't know what to do. Remember the Samaritans is always there to listen on 116123, email joe at or text the Shout Crisis text line on 85258. And the emergency services are there for mental health emergencies as much as they are a heart attack. If someone's life is really in immediate danger, call 999 and ask for help. That's all for today. I hope it's been useful. I'll put those numbers and details in the show notes along with some other information which might be useful. Tomorrow, we're going to be bringing things home a little to where we are right now. COVID-19, coronavirus, the lockdown. What does it mean for you? How is it affecting us? How can we make it work and not have too terrible an impact on our state of mind? Thanks for listening. Enjoy whatever tonight has in store and see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.